Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm speaking with Megan Sandberg-Zakian, author of There Must Be Happy Endings, on a theater of optimism and honesty. Megan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. (laughs) Sure. Um, I want to just kind of point out something about your book that I thought was really interesting, which is it is a book about theater. I mean, the subtitle on a theater of optimism and honesty, but it really feels like it's also a book that could have a a wide appeal to people outside of theater. It's kind of about, you know, how to create, how to be creative in general, in a way that feels like you write in the book, both optimistic and honest. Was that something that you had in mind when you were writing it? Like, was your intended audience broader than just theater people? Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny because um, I I guess I feel like theater people are people and (laughs) people are theater people. I mean, I don't, Uh I've been asked that question a couple of times and I feel like, uh, you know, theater people are people who um, get excited about telling or hearing stories and um, theater people are people who um, think about the characters and conflict in their lives and theater people are people who... um, care what narratives are shared with their children and you know so yeah I mean I I, um in terms of like people who make theater professionally for a living um I certainly wasn't just thinking about um that uh audience when I was writing I was thinking about the ways that that all of us are interested in um the theater of human experience uh and um and then of course there's my particular professional path has been as a theater director. So there's a lot about that in the book, but um, so much of my, so many of my questions about endings <laughs> come from um, life questions and, and not as much theater making questions. Yeah. Endings are so hard <laughs> in both theater and in life. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really like how in your book, there's a very kind of holistic approach to theater. It's not, it's not this thing where you're considering craft as something that you can separate from kind of the narrative or from what's going on in the rest of your life. Could you talk a bit about kind of what your path in theater has been, how you became interested in in theater and kind of where your career has taken you? Yeah. Um, well, so uh, growing up, my, my dad is a theater director and um, he taught at a school called Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle, Washington. So I would go with him to um, rehearsals and classes with his students. And so from a very young age, I was kind of babysat by theater, you know. Uh, and and I, I mean, I think like almost any kid in this situation, I thought it was incredibly cool and got really excited and, and instantly, you know, started trying to recreate um, plays in my living room with my, initially with my paper dolls. And then when my parents... Uh, finally gave me a sibling. I could create, I could create um, plays in my living room with, with my little brother, Eric. And, and, you know, I think the, the, um, the idea that it would be a job or like an aspiration for a career trajectory came a lot later, but I was so, um, I was so excited about telling stories from a really young age. Uh, and, and I'll, I'll also say my, mo- my mom's a molecular biologist and um, she'll, she'll, she'll often say, my work is, is as creative as your work and your father's work, uh, which I think is really true. And I, I, so I grew up with her sense of like uh, experimenting, you know, like trying something and, oh, if it fails, that's really interesting. And, you know, what can we learn from that? Uh, which I think is a pretty great lesson for a theater maker too. Um, so yeah, two really creative parents and, um, lots of freedom to, um, tell my own stories was the genesis of, uh, of my interest in this work. This is jumping a bit later in the book, but you kind of talk about how you and your father have 
pretty different approaches to theater in some ways. Could you talk a bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for asking about that. I, I, um, gosh, I, uh, am so inspired by my dad. Um, and also so different from him. It's, uh, it's been, it, it took writing the book, I think, to really unpack that for me a little bit and to find my own, um, like, oh, right, here is how I can stand uh, on my, you know, with my own point of view and in my own process and be in relationship to him without being, um, you know, always copying him, which uh, I didn't even quite realize I was doing. But yeah, my, my father, um, and I, I, you know, I write in the book a little bit about how I have, or I actually write in the book quite a lot about I, how I um, have often related to theater in a kind of spiritual way that I, um, you know, theater as church, theater making a spiritual practice and as, um, as a way of asking some of these like big universal moral questions that we sometimes ask of the divine. And uh, my dad is really like theater maker as problem solver, like um, a theater maker as, as answerer of question, um, of, uh, of a question that can be answered, you know, of, of, um, of, of, of thing that can be unpacked and put in an order that makes sense. Um, and, uh, and, and I really, I've benefited a lot from his, um, he's a, he's a, he's a director, but he's also an amazing playwright and dramaturg and, um, has dramaturged my work from uh, from those early days, and certainly did with this book as well. Uh, so, so I, I've really benefited from that, and I and I hope I, I you know, Dad, if you're listening, uh, I hope that he's also benefited from some of my um, more warm and fuzzy and amorphous, and uh, sometimes huh, I don't know, um, uh, searching, questioning longing, uh, desiring ways of making theater. Yeah. Um, one of the figures that you talk about a lot in the book that's maybe a surprising um, kind of interlo- interlocutor is Brecht. I, I don't think people think of Brecht and think of theater as spiritual practice. I think, <laughs> you know, he has endings, a rep- or happy endings. Yeah. Though your title does come from the epilogue to a good person of Szechuan. Um, could you talk a bit about, you know, what Brecht in general means to you, and also that specific phrase, there must be happy endings, which comes from from that play? I, yes, I will happily talk about Brecht all day long. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so the, um, the title, as you note, comes from the, the epilogue to Good Person of Szechuan, and um, the, the, the epilogue is... Um, uh, if, if if folks know the play, there are uh, there's a there's a group of gods that have come down to earth to try to find a good person, and they identify um, this candidate uh, as a good person and um, and try to help her stay good by giving her some money. And you know everything, of course, goes horribly wrong. And at the end, she um, is left screaming up to the heavens for the gods to help her as they uh, abandon her. Uh, and abandon her. The 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 um, implication is to sort of like a waiting mob outside the door, um, and so then the play ends, and and um, uh, a player, as Brecht says, steps out in front of the curtain and and asks the audience, um, "Gosh, yeah, I this this is this ending is kind of confusing. We don't really haven't really arranged anything for it." Um, and then says, "There's only one solution that we know." that you should now consider as you go, what sort of measures you would recommend to help good people to a happy end. Ladies and gentlemen, in you we trust, there must be happy endings, must, must, must. And, you know, and so for me, um, that uh, has been a real touchstone in the sense of like, um, thinking about relationship to audience, thinking about um, our role and our responsibility um, in the kind of communal utopian space of an audience, as Jill Dolan would, would say, um, to imagine together what, what a happy ending might look like, or what um, justice might look like, or what, how we might create something outside the frame of the play to um, address our, con- our concerns. Uh, and, um, and I, I think Brecht, you know, in that sense, Brecht is an incredibly utopian and optimistic playwright, because Brecht is constantly 
structuring um, theatrical experiences that ask us, um, whoever we are in the audience, in the community, in the readership, to think deeply about what, what kind of world we want to see, you know, and to me, there's nothing more optimistic than a room full of people or a, or a zoom full of people, you know, in these days, <laughs> um, uh, imagining together, um, what kind of world, uh, we, we would like to build together. Yeah, one of the things that really excited me about Brecht when I was first learning about him in high school, I went to Arizona School for the Arts and we we read a lot of Brecht. Uh, I, my directing teacher was sort of obsessed with him. <laughs> and one of the things that really excited me about him was that idea that the play doesn't end in the theater, that the play mm. can only be concluded in the realm of political struggle, that you have to kind of resolve the contradictions that are are articulated in the play through actually acting in the real world. Mm. Um, does that style of ending still appeal to you or does it feel like a little bit of a cop-out? <laughs> um, that's a good question. And, you know, it's funny, uh, in a way, I almost feel unable to answer that question right now because I haven't seen a live play in a theater in a while and I don't know how it would resonate with me in this exact moment. Um, but, I, you know, I, I will say, and I, I write about this in the book in, in the chapter where I uh, kind of negotiate with, um, with Brecht and with uh, Brecht's authorial problems, you know, where, where we, we know now that... Um, Brecht uh, sort of kept control over a whole group of female collaborators who were mostly uncredited in his work. And, um, and, you know, so for, we're thinking about, and, 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 you know, didn't always treat them very well either. Uh, and there's some grisly stories, actually, I, this didn't make it into the book, but um, I, I wrote uh, a, a part of that chapter at one point about how his female collaborators ended like their deaths, the end of their lives. Um, since the book is about endings and, and just many of them were just completely terrible. Um, so, mm. you know, um, the, the, the chapter uh, that, that deals most significantly with, with Brecht also struggles, as you know, with, can I be satisfied with this type of ending? And, um, you know, I think what I ultimately come to in the chapter is like, well, I haven't yet been satisfied by this kind of ending, either as an artist or as an audience member, but I really want to be. And I'm interested in continuing to work on that, um, both uh, on both sides of the of the curtain, you know, as an as an audience member and as an artist. So I'm very interested in it. I don't know if it's satisfying. What do you I mean, do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I, I've seen, I remember one really uh, kind of momentous example of this type of ending being really effective, which is when I was in high school in Arizona, I saw a touring production of a play by Tetra Campesino. And it mm. ended with them like going into the audience and getting us to chant along with them with these United Farm Workers strikers in the play. Yeah. And it was um, just before SV 1070 passed in Arizona, which was this incredibly draconian immigration bill. So I felt mm. like that was like a and, and actually having seen the play really inspired me to become involved in the protests around SB 1070, which was basically the first time I'd ever done any kind of independent political action. It wasn't something, you know, my parents took me to. It was something that I decided that I wanted to do on my own. So, mm. you know, I would say at least in in my case, there was actually an instance where somebody saw a play and it made them want to do something political in the world outside. That is um, so awesome. I, that, I mean, okay. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And, and, and their work is incredible. And, the, and certainly yeah. there are companies, you know, when you think of the way that they've treated those texts or the way that Cornerstone has treated those texts um, or Roadside Theater uh, uh, tied really specifically, as in your case, to, um, to movements. You know, I, I think it's Anna Devere Smith said, um, I read at one point that she said, theater can't make people into activists, but it can deliver the people to the activists, you know, and, and it sounds like, yeah, um, that's what happened. They, the Teatro del Campesino delivered you to the activists in that just as such a beautiful way. So I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. Sure. Um, I'd love to talk about the subtitle of the book, um, 
which is on a theater of optimism and honesty. And I love that you pair those two things, optimism and honesty. It's it's rare that we get both of those at the same time. Um, so how do you how do you try to balance those two, both in your work and in your life outside of the theater? Ha. <laughs> well, um, I think what writing the book actually taught me was um, that 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 it's less of a balance than a kind of productive tension, you know, like keeping the string tight <laughs> between those two things um, rather than kind of anxiously trying to rebalance a, uh, between them. Uh, yeah. So, um, and, and, and what I discovered in that process of, and this is a, a it's actually, I, I should credit my brilliant editor Anne DeMarkin um, with, repeating over and over to me that I, that idea of productive tension, because, um, it took me a while. It took me a while to, to, uh, really let go of the idea that I should be constantly trying to balance back towards optimism, um, and to embrace this, um, the, the idea, you know, like if you're, um, uh, if, if you, it's, it's the, the, you know, that, that sometimes tension is about, um, pulling, um, pulling in both directions. Um, and the, the thing that I discovered, uh, which is so, um, which is really the gift of writing the book, um, was that so much more optimism was possible. The more I opened up to honesty, you know, like the more willing I was to expand my witnessing, um, my, my really honest, witnessing of the full spectrum of what was around me, um, much of which, uh, was and is really, really deeply painful, you know, just like, just incredibly painful and distressing and sad, you know, and, and also, um, and, and alongside that, uh, much of, to, to be honestly witnessing everything means that you also encounter just stunning beauty and grace and, um, and expansive capacity, you know? Um, and, and so the, the more, the, the wider I opened the aperture, you know, into what I was able to honestly encounter, um, the, the more capacity opened up for, for optimism too, which, and hope, you know, uh, which, which is something that I keep having to remind myself these days. Like, I, I don't know about you, but like, there's so, there've been so many moments over the last several months where I have, um, gotten tense and gotten resistant to like full honest witnessing of everything that's going on around me because I feel afraid of not having access to hope. You know, I feel afraid that if I look too closely, I'm going to lose my ability to, hope. And, uh, what I keep reminding myself, um, I don't know if I'm always, I don't know if I'm doing a great job of that in this moment, but it's helpful to repeat it and to remind myself about it again is, um, when you're afraid, lean further into it, you know, lean further into the witnessing. It will, I know now that it will lead me back to hope and optimism. Um, and if it has to take me through something that feels particularly dark, um, there will be a, a, an equal balance to that productive tension on the other side. One of the framings of optimism that you talk about is Jill Dolan's idea of militant optimism. And you write <laughs> yeah. about the ways that your kind of engagement with that militant optimism uh, has changed over the years. Could you talk a little bit about that journey? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, similarly to what I was just saying. And I, I definitely, when I first read um, Jill's amazing book, Utopia in Performance, which I highly recommend to, um, well, everyone, <laughs> um, I, I, I got so excited about this concept of militant optimism, this idea that uh, there's a kind of um, dynamic, active, uh, 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 uplifting, um, thing that happens when we come into community and t t together to watch a play, um, that, uh, that actually generates this, um, this is, this is my, this is my interpretation of it. This is not <laughs> Dolan's, uh, this is not, I don't think what Dolan is writing about exclusively, but you know, my interpretation was 
yes, yes, we can be optimistic if we come together to watch theater. We will come together. We will imagine. It will be beautiful. You know, this this kind of um, almost aggressive uh, push of um, hope. And, um, and, you know, this was, I was reading this, uh, I think around the time, uh, I don't, I, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure this is a hundred percent correct, but what I remember is reading it around the time Obama was first elected. And there was a kind of militant optimism happening, you know, there was a kind of, um, you know, the yes we can. Yeah. There's that. So, uh, and what we realized nationally, and certainly what I realized, is that that kind of aggressive optimism uh, can um, erase things. You know, that that kind of um, militant optimism led to this idea of a post-racial America and, the, and this sense of, yes, we can move past these things that are that have shaped our systems for centuries and, you know, and and, um, and a desire to, to, to run past uh the complex, difficult things rather than to sit with and make sense of them. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, so I, I think I, um, and many of us have moved from that place of militant optimism to, um, through this like more complex holding of actually what's, what gives me hope is, uh, the ability for the full complexity to be present and, um, people to not have to erase parts of themselves and, and um, to, to be fully seen and to be uh, fully heard um, in the conversation. And then, you know, once, once I was, came to that, then I feel like I was able to sort of circle back around to militant optimism and to see it, see it as um, not just this like aggressive erasing force, but to see it as um a powerful expanse, you know, what I was describing, what I was just describing in terms of like, it's, it's militant because it marches ever outward, you know, that, that there's infinite capacity within it to, um, grow and deepen. Um, and, and so now I feel like my optimism is militant in, in that sense and also unshakable, you know, that there's a, um, <laughs> I felt that way finishing the book, um, and this, and certainly the last eight months. The book was released at the, at the end, end of February, and so you know <laughs> it was it released, and then instantly we were, we were in quarantine, and and my unshakable unshakable militant optimism has been sorely tested and tried, but um, it's still it's still there. I still feel I still feel that, yeah. And one of the things you write about in terms of the relationship between theater and and optimism and, and kind of all art and optimism is that just the act of making art is itself an act of hope. It's an act of saying, I think that it is worthwhile to, you know, get 30 people to work together to create an evening for a couple of hundred other people and that that is, is worth doing. And even just kind of asserting that that is worth doing is is kind of a a way that you can push back against hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, that, that going even into sort of the granularity of that act of creation, that there's something uh, sort of in, in some kind of essential way, uh, almost heartbreakingly hopeful about just writing down a sentence or singing a verse of a song, like this idea that we can, put a piece of ourselves into the world and it will be heard, you know, this, it's, it's a kind of faith, you know, a kind of this, this, after everything we've been through that we can believe someone will hear me. Someone wants to hear me. Um, and, uh, I want to be heard. Uh, it's, I, I can bring myself to tears just like thinking about that. It's so powerful. And I felt that, um, in writing the book, you know, I felt, this really, this really moving sense of, oh my God, this is the most optimistic thing I've ever done to put this into the world and to believe people will read it. And it's so hopeful for someone to read it. They, they must believe, um, she has something to say to me, (laughs) you know, right. It's just beautiful. And, And the same thing, I mean, someone is listening to this right now, you know, to our conversation and, 
and um, feeling like it's, it, you know, feeling our voices over the weird void of time and space and hearing us, you know, isn't that so cool? I think it's cool. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I really loved about the book. So this is, it's your first book, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I really felt that tension of like, you're so addicted to the live experience of theater <laughs> and writing a book I, I sense was sort of a strange activity for you. And so there are p- moments when you're sort of staging the reader's experience in a kind of directorial way. So I guess, I mean, maybe I should have asked this question earlier, but why did you decide to write a book? And and was there a certain point in writing these essays when you kind of realized that it, it was a book or was it always a book or yeah, what was, what was that process like? Uh, yeah. Well, I first want to say, like, to you and to anyone listening, if you think you have a book in you, um, you probably do. <laughs> um, there's, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's so, that once the floodgates opened for me, I, I, I was really excited by how much of a book was there. Um, and uh, I, so the book started as uh, essays that I wrote for as part of my um, requirements in my grad program. I went to um, Goddard College in Vermont, which is like a, you know, hippie grad school in the mountains where we, it was a low residency program. So I really wanted to keep working. I was, I was working at the Providence Black Repertory Theater at the time and wanted to, to um, continue in that role and in that job. And, uh, and so I decided to do this low residency grad program. Um, so it's an MFA in interdisciplinary art at Goddard College in Vermont. And so my, um, my colleagues, my classmates at Goddard were, you know, not only playwrights and performers, but like stone carvers and puppeteers and experimental musicians and, um, you know, mixed media painters and, and all of this uh, incredibly interesting interdisciplinary work. And, uh, and so the, the, the writing that I did while I was there was very, expansive in terms of discipline you know it wasn't just um I directed this play and this is how the process went you know it really ranged and I was uh lucky enough to have as a faculty member while I was there and Markin who I mentioned before who 10 years later would start um the third thing press and when Anne started the press she called me and said you know that writing you were doing in grad school, do you think that's a book? Because I just mm. started a press. And if you think it's a book, I'd be interested in publishing it. Um, and, you know, the experience of someone having held on to what I was working on for 10 years and, um, and circled back to it was incredibly moving and powerful. And I, I you know, I have to say, Again, like to you and to listeners, if there's any uh, work that that has resonated with you for that long, reaching back to the creator of it, I can only imagine would be incredibly powerful. Um, So, yeah, so it was really Anne saying, um, is it a book? Uh, Which caused me to say, oh, why, yes, I believe it is. And then, of course, I instantly like freaked out. I was like, wait, what? What does that mean? How do I do that? Um, But I had a, yeah, I had a great editor. So she guided me through that process. And I I highly recommend um, to listeners to check out the other uh, books in in the cohort, the first cohort of authors published by The Third Thing. They're all really interdisciplinary and like just extremely cool. Yeah, I've I've taken a look at the roster for this year. There's some amazing people there. Yeah, completely amazing. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, I'd love to talk about some of the specific uh, plays that you write about in the book. And you write a lot about August Wilson, and one of the things that I, I recently, actually just yesterday, happened to reread Jitney. And one of the things that struck me about it is that it is, I mean, that's a play that I think is a happy ending. I mean, mm. you know, the main character dies, but his son kind of takes up his legacy in the last line of the play. Um, 
but in August Wilson's place, it's almost like right up until the final moment, it could be either a tragedy or, I mean, not quite a comedy, but it could either be a, a, a tragic ending or a happy ending. Is that for you one of the things that makes his happy endings feel so resonant? Hmm. Huh, what a great question. Um, you know, I would say that I, I haven't ever thought about that um, put in the way that you just put it, but, you know, put put in that way, uh, the plays string together, you know, it's like the, the happy ending or the tragedy in the final moments of the play or even in earlier moments of the play is it is in the context of the full cycle. So it's like, is it an ending? <laughs> is it a tragedy? Is it a, you know, there's a kind of sense of the ebb and flow of um, deep, deep grief and deep, deep joy, uh, which is really at the heart of the blues and the, the blues aesthetic. That's one of the places that Wilson is writing from and the, and um, the jazz of it too, right? Just like the, the, um, the, the riff on, <laughs> tragedy and then the riff on joy and pleasure and and yeah so i think i mean the the that that productive tension um you know that we were talking about earlier is is just perfectly at, at play in in all of his work and um i think it makes the um yeah the tragedy all that much more tragic and the the joy and the comedy for there there is humor um that much more joyful and funny in um and in in you know i think in in the in the endings that i love the most uh they feel totally they resonate with that tension you know it's like i mean you can say the the one i write about um most in depth in the book is joe turner's come and gone which is my favorite wilson play and uh the 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 happy ending you know which i i make a a, a case for it I think I make both cases. I think I make a case for it being a happy ending and it being uh, a, a complicated ending that's hard to call happy. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I that's yeah that is what I love about about that play and about that work. Um, and mostly I feel with Wilson and actually that essay in particular, writing that essay and thinking about that play over the over a decade um, and of a particular production of that play, uh, the Broadway production directed by Bartlett Scher. Um, I think really taught me the central lesson of the book about this productive tension and about um, the, po- the the possibility and even the responsibility of being able to fully hold um, mm-hmm. those two things. And that, yeah, I mean, talk about a play teaching you how to live. Um, that play really, really does it for me. Because in the ending of that play, so Harold Loomis uh, slashes his chest and is is bleeding and that's when he kind of discover he kind of comes into him himself and and uh discovers his song is is mm-hmm. how it describes it in the stage directions which is like really hard to stage <laughs> like technically it's hard to stage, but just like what does it look like for someone to find their song i mean it's you 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 make a strong case in the book that that production didn't quite nail the ending but it is a tricky ending to stage <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. To all of that. It's incredibly, it's incredibly tricky. Yeah. I think it has, to, I mean, I think it has everything to do with the, um, the way that the production has filled the idea of the song and how the character of Bynum has filled that, you know, we just lost an amazing Wilsonian actor this past week, um, Anthony Chisholm, who, you know, in terms of these griot characters and Wilson was so skilled at uh, creating our understanding of that, of, of these <laughs> elusive conceptual um, images, um, bringing them down to earth with such precision as a performer um, that, yeah, I think that, you know, in, in a, if, if you have an actor like that and a production like that, when, when, when Bynum says, uh, you shine in like new money, we know he's right. You know, we believe him and we see it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so you you write about August Wilson, but you also write extensively about um, your your kind of broader engagement with the Black theatrical tradition. You worked with Black Rep in Providence uh, for for some time, and you've also directed a lot of shows that uh, deal with the experience of slavery, the aftermath of slavery. You directed a play based on Harriet Jacobs. You directed a play based on Nat Turner. Could you talk a little bit about how you approach the challenge of dealing with work that is about the Black experience while being not a Black person? Yes, 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 yes. There's so much about this in the book. Um, and partially because I, I started writing the book, as I mentioned, um, and as you mentioned, when I was working uh, with Black Rep in Providence. So it was on my mind then. Um, and uh, and that organization um, was a casualty of the recession closed, closed its doors in 2009. So, um, the process of grieving that organization and thinking about my role in it and my role as a, um, as a director of and developer of, uh, plays by and about, uh, black folks has been, has, has been a big, uh, driver of all of these questions. Um, so, I, I mean, the first thing that I would say is that I feel grateful to, um, I feel really grateful to have gotten to work for, um, as we call them, a culturally specific organization, which just means like not a white organization, you know, a, right. uh, an African-American theater company and really an intersectionally black theater company that was um, pretty focused on intersectionality even at the time. And, and so getting to, to really get my professional um, legs as a director in that organization uh, taught me a lot about, you know, I, w- I was already in a place that did not center whiteness. Um, and I, as, a, as someone of mixed heritage myself, um, I'm Armenian and, and like sort of Jewish, mutt, Romanian, Austrian, Russian. Uh, um, and, you know, so, so so it was the first time that I had been in a place that didn't center whiteness and where I was able to discover like, Oh yeah, I'm not completely white. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> and I'm also not black. Um, and so how do I, um, what, what, what is my role as an artist here and getting to ask those questions in a black organization was, I think probably the biggest gift I've been given in my career. Um, it was, uh, it was astonishing to, um, to, to get to step outside of all of these oppressive paradigms that typically make up the American theater. And, um, and so, uh, you know, how do I think about, I can't remember how you, how, what the question was, but in terms of how I think about, um, myself as a director and my relationship to, um, plays by black playwrights or, um, by playwrights that don't share, uh, my, well, no, let's stick to plays by black playwrights really, or plays about black folks. Um, I, I, I feel like I am able to have a really transparent conversation with the, I'm almost always working on new plays. I'm you know, thinking about world premieres, um, a really transparent conversation with the playwright about the play, about my relationship to it, about my relationship to white supremacy, um, about my complex mixed heritage and my ongoing unpacking of that, which is still feels really, really thorny to me. And I write about that in the book too. Um, how, uh, unfinished that work feels this genocides on both sides of my heritage and, um, the relationship to blackness and, and how, and this is really, uh, you know, in the book, um, there's a chapter that, that, that talks about my marriage a great deal. And, um, my wife is, is African American and, um, she, she used to ask me all the time, like, why do you direct all these black plays? Uh, and really, I would say through these incredibly difficult conversations with her um, was where I came to understand how un, uh, how how un unpacked. What's the word? <laughs> I don't know what the what the word for that is. How how unexamined, yeah. right? My uh, relationship to my own. Um, trauma history was and how I was funneling some of that confusion um, into blackness that there we have this tendency as Americans 
to um, uh, allow, and, and in terms of particularly as storytellers and as um, makers of narrative, to allow blackness to stand in for trauma, you know, to mm. say, um, uh, this is a story where on the surface of it, it's a story about um, a poor black, you know, child or, you know, or something, but um, really we are uh, using that story and that idea of, of blackness to process something about our collective trauma. There's a, there's a kind of idea that you step into the monolith of whiteness in this country, whether you're um, Middle Eastern or Asian or um, Latinx, uh, that you, you know, some kind of white adjacent, um, uh, from some kind of white adjacent immigrant experience. And when you step into the monolith of whiteness, you like suddenly all your trauma history is erased and it becomes all about blackness and whiteness in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, race and identity in this country, which is confusing, which is super confusing. And I think, um, so yeah, Candace, uh, my, my wife, Dr. Uh, Candace Crawford Zakian really, really pushed me to go deeper in my interrogation of those dynamics and how they were showing up in my work and, um, and in our marriage, quite frankly, you know, we could do a whole other mm. podcast about, marriage and race and theater. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of that chapter uh, because um, it felt, uh, it felt like an opportunity to be where I am in this process, which is like definitely not finished. Has that kind of reckoning with your own inherited trauma changed the type of work that you want to do or the type of work, the type of jobs that you're accepting? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it has. I, I, I think to some extent it's changed. It, it's changed. I haven't, I, I, it's changed because I've changed. So like the kind of plays I'm pitching are maybe different. Um, so, uh, the kinds of, um, other artists that I feel drawn to. Um, one thing that happened during the course of, um, not the course of writing the book, but the, the, um, the time between um, when I left Black Rep and when I wrote the book uh, was I got the chance for the first time really to be in the room with a lot of other Middle Eastern artists um, mm. that I had never experienced that before. It was totally, I felt really isolated, you know? And so um, there, was a, there was a gathering at the Lark in New York City, um, uh, a convening of um, Middle Eastern artists. And I can't remember the year exactly, but it was, it just blew my mind. It was amazing. And suddenly I was in the room with all these other artists and not only other artists, but actually other Middle Eastern directors and not only other Middle Eastern directors, other queer Middle Eastern directors, other Middle Eastern directors of mixed heritage. I mean, my, I was like, my mind was blown. It was incredible. And, <laughs> and out of that came, um, the formation of a consulting group that I co-founded with three other Middle Eastern directors uh, called Maya Directors. And the four of us uh, have been in collaboration and partnership both around um, continuing to unpack all of this um, identity and, and work stuff as it relates to our practice as directors and serving the field too um, through our consulting work, through cultural consulting, production consulting. Um, and that uh, more than anything has changed, has changed me, has ch it's changed me being in that community and being able to, um, having access to that kind of support and that kind of conversation around my work with other people who are close to me, um, I, in terms of identity. It's now I'm an, I don't know, I'm very emotional today, <laughs> uh, but, um, <laughs> well, it's a very emotional <laughs> book. It's understandable. Yeah, it is. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it, 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 it is. It's a, the vulnerable and emotional book. So, um, and I always have to remind myself that it's okay to keep being open in that way when I talk yeah. about it. Yeah. One of the things you write about a little bit in the book is, is just kind of how in American theater, it's often assumed that Middle Eastern and Muslim are kind of uh, coextensive categories. Mm -hmm. um, even when a lot of the plays that are written about about Islam are not actually written by people who are themselves Muslim. Is that something that you've kind of navigated in your own work, either in the consulting work or in your directing as somebody who is of Middle Eastern descent, but isn't of Muslim descent? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, 
I still have yet to direct uh, a, a full production of a play about Armenians, um, or even I think mm. I don't think I've ever had. I'm trying to think if I've ever had an or even an Armenian character on stage in a full production. No, I haven't. Crazy, yeah. So, yeah. so that's crazy, I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, or not? You know, like it, it took until um, this last year for me to direct a play with. Um, a romantic relationship between two women on stage. Um, mm. And that's, you know, that's another huge part of my identity. I mean, it certainly, it, it reminds me as those first, uh, uh, hopefully start to pile up of how long I've spent um, not encountering work that's um, really, really close to my own experience. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, um, I mean, the, the, the the specific history of my Middle Eastern heritage is one of um, extreme conflict. I mean, genocidal conflict between um, Muslims, Turkish Muslims, and Armenian Christians. So uh, I have just as much to unpack around Islamophobia and um, and violent traumatic history as uh, anyone else who might have that, you know, as any American who might have that. And I never forget that. Uh, I I, yeah, I never forget that. Um, moving on to a topic that might seem more cheery, but is actually probably not. Uh, one of the plays you write about is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, um, (laughs) which is this, you know, raucous, uh, glam rock, punk rock musical. I actually recently did a whole interview talking about this show, uh, with Caridad Fitch. Um, oh my gosh, I have to listen to that. Yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. She wrote a book about the play uh, and her experience with it, and and it's a play that you know is is very beloved. A lot of people really love this show, and it gets done all the time. Um, but you kind of um, bring to the surface a lot of the traumatic themes that are a bit submerged in the uh in in at least in some productions of this play could you talk a little bit about how understanding that trauma was kind of a dramatic engine of this show helped you to direct it hmm yeah um wow well i i i mean i love the show i love the music i was so just i mean i was i was so eager to direct it and just thought, you know, I'm going to rock out and it's going to be so much fun. And, and, you know, we're just going to like, woohoo. <laughs> um, and, uh, and actually I got, I, I had the, the amazing opportunity to direct it twice in pretty close succession with the same mm. um, cast and band, which was, oh my gosh, I wish I, I wish that that would happen more often. You know, it's really, really cool to get to revisit something um, that way. And, uh, and it was the second time that, that I was working on it, that it was like all of a sudden the genocide in Hedwig leapt out at me. It was, it was mm-hmm. as if I said, I said, is this the same script that we used last year? You know, um, right. it, it was, uh, yeah, it was like someone had, you know, shown a black light on it and all this stuff popped out that hadn't been visible before. Um, and I, I detail a whole bunch of, of that in the, in the book for those who are curious, but, um, the, the, uh, the insight that was really helpful to me in directing it was, um, kind of genesis of genocide as a kind of split, you know, like, uh, mm. us and the other. Um, and of course that gender is a split and, uh, and, there's all these other kinds of symbolic splits going on in, in, um, in that play in terms of, you know, there's East Germany and West Germany. There's, uh, the split of, um, there's a physiological split, you know, of genitalia away from the body. And, uh, that, that the, that the binary, um, causes violence essentially that, that Mm. the idea that, that, um, we have to exist in this really split and binary space of, um, this or this um, is is a really ultimately really violent idea that could lead to genocide, that can lead to um, the erasure of people with non-binary identities, and that can lead to uh, our inability to be fully ourselves, um, both in the sense of um, 
you know, that we have to, that we have to shuttle ourselves off to one side or the other in order to be acceptable or to be seen, but also that, uh, the binary actually requires violence of us, you know, like, like, like not only violence towards ourselves, but violence towards other people. And, and there's a kind of beautiful, um, domino hall of mirrors, uh, of violence in the script that I hadn't seen the first time. That was this kind of, you know, the traumatizing of Hedwig by her father, um, the, and then the re-traumatizing of, I mean, we also, we also assume the traumatizing, the offstage traumatizing of Luther for being a black man in the United States and being a gay man in the armed forces. Um, and then, uh, Luther enacting, um, this trauma on Hedwig, uh, and Hedwig enacting this trauma on Yitzhak and, um, ultimately understanding that there's a, that it will go on forever. You know, that the binary requires of us a constant splitting off and chopping and that the only, um, the only path towards integration or towards, towards some kind of more whole experience of self and other is to um, see ourselves as perpetrator as well as victim, mm. which Hedwig does in the, um, in, in, you know, ultimately she is able to see that not only has she um, been acted upon by Tommy and, you know, by Luther, but then by Tommy, um, but she has acted upon Yitzhak and it is the, it's Tommy's um, ability to see himself as perpetrator that gives her the ability to see herself as perpetrator that opens up this space of grace and in, in at the end of that show. And, you know, this, I mean, for me, oh my God, Andy, you know, for me, this, this was the hardest chapter in the book to write. Uh, it was not even finished, like all the way down to the wire. I was struggling mm. and I was, I was just, you know. It was, it was, I was crying and I was like, uh, what is this? I don't know, why can't I finish this? And um, because it, ultimately it got to a really stuck part of my own identity. You know, I mentioned I have genocides on both sides of my family. Um, and uh, to look at myself and say, hey, like, where am I perpetrator? You know, where have I caused harm? Um, and how can I lean fully enough into my own felt capacity for violence and harm that I can heal um, myself, you know, that I can heal the, the trauma, um, all of this un, unprocessed trauma that lives in me from, from the past. And it, yeah, it was, I mean, I, I guess that's another chapter that feels that also feels like the work is unfinished. I felt like I got to a place right before the book was published um, of being able to just allow myself to be seen where I was with those ideas. Um, and also, as you know, from reading the book, <clears throat> allow myself uh, to be present with the understanding that um, as is true in the structure of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, that you have to have a breakdown to have a breakthrough, you know, mm. that sometimes it's breaking yourself down in front of your audience. And in my case, in front of my readers, um, uh, allowing yourself to just totally fall apart in live communion with your, with your readers, um, that opens up the space for grace. And so I, I don't know, I tried to do that. I hope that the essay, I hope that the essay does open up that, that space. Yeah. And that's one of the one of your insights about this show is that that structure of somebody trying to tell a story and finding themselves not able to tell the story how they wanted to tell it or how they planned to tell it is itself a kind of uh, structure of trauma, right? That's what trauma does. It interrupts mm -hmm. our ability to tell our own story. And mm -hmm. so you point out that this is a structure that's been used many times in works that are dealing with historical trauma and genocide. You point to 2.5 Minute Ride by Lisa Cronus, another example of this. And uh, mm -hmm. I thought that was a really profound insight. Yeah, thanks. I did too. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that sort of, I, I call it in the book, I call it Hedwig structure um, is, yeah. um, is an incredibly helpful tool for reminding us of just what you said, that trauma interrupts our ability to tell our own story. 
And, um, you know, Lisa Crone is really the master of this. I mean, uh, Fun Home is another another one that, you know, where, where she really, um, oh gosh, you just think about that, you know, um, telephone wires, you know, that song and, yeah. and, uh, uh, with, with, you know, big Allison having to step in and just, you know, step out and no, no, you know, I can't do it make it stop. Um, I can't change it. The, the breakdown of that moment is so. That's maybe kind of what all of her work is about now that you mentioned it. I mean, I think Well is about that, too. I think In the Wake is sort of about that as well, of somebody trying to tell a story. And then, I mean, that play doesn't have the direct address, but does still have that thing of there's somebody who's, you know, leading a certain story. And then some another story comes in and says, hey, you've completely neglected this story that is a necessary part of your story. I mean, that seems to be really, yeah, gosh, I guess kind of her theme. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, as a, as a, as a queer person, as a woman, as a Jewish woman, um, as someone um, with different kinds of health trauma in her family, I think she understands this really deeply. And I mean, I don't, I've never talked about this with her, although I would love to Lisa Crone. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, it's a stunning canon of, uh, of that, of that use of that structural, um, element to expose our um, the way that 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 trauma changes storytelling and, and changes our um, but you know also in terms of hope and optimism right uh, I think ultimately all of her work is so optimistic in terms of uh, the character's willingness to have the breakdown and uh, uh, move into this complexified space you know which might be a distressing space and might be um, a space with some healing, but either way to, to allow it to happen, to take it in. It's, um, yeah. it's really hopeful work. One more aspect of your book that I really, uh, enjoyed and found very useful is how you talk about kind of how you run a rehearsal room and how you create a certain emotional tone in a rehearsal room that allows people to do their best work. And that's something that I've found myself in the last, I guess, you know, year or two really thinking a lot about is, is the director is creating a play, but is also responsible for being the person who makes the room that the play gets made in. Could you talk a little bit about kind of how you make a room? Yes. Um, well, this is the the part I love the most about my work, for sure. I, I think, you know, I became a director, really, because I love holding the container of space for other people. That's Mm-hmm. Um, where I feel sort of most myself and most useful, most um, most joyful, is in that that act of holding holding space. Whether it's sometimes it's holding a rehearsal room, sometimes it's holding a um, like a dramaturgical process for a playwright to unfurl something. But yeah, I think I mean, you know, in terms of the role of a director, uh, I, I I write in the book about having, first of all, I write about having like no uh, books by women directors that I, that I was mm-hmm. able to access when I was, when I was um, kind of like in school and coming of age as a director. And eventually, you know, Anne Bogart started writing books, which was awesome. And I love them and I devoured them. Um, but, you know, still in terms of like a, an intersectional uh, woman director, someone um, with a different background than, than Anne, uh, there wasn't really anything out there. And so I felt, you know, I was sort of discovering on my own um, the idea of, so the, th- the thing in in, um, in Anne's writing that I had really glommed onto was this idea of the director is able to uh, hold uncertainty longest of anyone in the room um, to, to tolerate, actually tolerate uncertainty. That's the, the director is a person who can tolerate uncertainty longer than anyone else in the room. And uh, I went back to, to to find that quote when I was working on the, on the book and found that it's actually Anne Bogart quoting Chuck Me. And she's right. quoting him, you know. Sort of like, disapprovingly, right? Yeah, disapprovingly, exactly, exactly. Or, yeah. or sort of, you know, to say like, hmm, like maybe I need to think about this because this is never the way that I work. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and she's really talking about... Um, you know, my process is really precise and I have to make choices and I have to, sometimes it's violent to make choices. Um, and so I, I have had to reckon with that as a director, you know, what does it mean to, to make choices? Um, when are you potentially harming your collaborators? 
with your own authority. Um, you know, and I think like the thing that I came to and that I, that I um, came to in the book is that uh, a container is necessary for safety. You know, you have to hold um, just, just, just tolerating uncertainty in and of itself is not safe. Um, or, or, you know, and I'm not speaking um, sort of just like the, the edict for directing for all time, but in terms of me and my process and, and what I, what works for me, um, there needs to be a certain amount, uh, a sense of containment, a sense of, um, of reassuring stability, <laughs> um, a sense that I am watching very, very closely. And um, if the room moves in a way that feels potentially harmful and that feels uh, and or that feels uh, really, really off task from what we are doing, um, that I will reconvene the container, you know, that I will tighten the container again to um, to come back to what we've agreed we're doing together. And uh, and and then, you know, that also like Anne Bogart is right and uh, there is there is inherent violence involved in in being creative. Um, she says, you know, uh, putting a chair in one place on the floor is violent because it cuts off all other possibilities of where of where that chair could be. And um, I think that's true. You know, I think that there is some every time you say to an actor, uh, yeah, 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 that's it. Keep that. <laughs> um, right. That there, you know, you're 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 uh, smashing to the ground all of the other potential ways of executing that moment, and um, and I, I've I've been working on embracing that part of the job too. That there is a there that that some of that creative violence is necessary for carving out the um, impact of the work. Yeah, I remember reading that essay, the the violence essay in that high school directing class and just hating it. (laughs) (laughs) Could not stand that essay. Oh my gosh. Um, For that exact reason. It felt so cruel. I'm so impressed with your high school curriculum. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Boyd Branch in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. Woohoo. Yeah. um, So yeah, it's 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 both of those things that that idea of creating holding a space and and kind of uh reveling in that uncertainty and then also knowing when the moment is right to say no this is this is what it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah i i have a question i've i kind of went back and forth about whether i wanted to ask you this but i <laughs> i think i will which is um do you think that this idea of creating a room and putting a lot of effort into kind of making a space where everybody feels comfortable and everybody feels like they can, they're free to explore. Do you feel like there's a gender dynamic to that? I feel like when I think of like directors, I know who are really good at that. They're almost all women. Mm -hmm. And when I think of directors who are like, I don't care how the actors feel as long as the work is good. Those are almost all men. (laughs) Ah, well, you said it. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to co-sign that uh, observation if you don't oh, I'm want. I'm co-signing it. I'm just happy that you made it. Yeah, I do. I have also had that observation. Yeah. Um, do you have a thought on why that is? I mean, it, have you have you gone further with that? that um, I don't know. I mean, I, not other than, you know, I think women are taught to value emotional connection in a way that men aren't. You know, but I don't have any more profound insight mm-hmm. into it than that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, and I also think that we're taught uh, that we have to be really careful about how we wield authority, and that the safest way to be in charge of something is to make other people feel like they are also in charge of it. Um, I certainly learned that implicitly and explicitly. You're you're taught that as a, you know, as a girl, even as a young woman. I mean, I even remember reading like, you know, Seventeen Magazine and Cosmo Magazine and, and it being very explicit, like, you know, how to get your how to get your man to do what you want while making him think that he's doing what you want, that kind of thing, right? right. Um, and, and you can translate that exactly to directing. Yeah, how, how to make your actors do, you know, do what you want while making them think they're doing what they want. I think that was my directing philosophy for a long time. 
that I thought that was directing was convincing mm -hmm. people that they're following their own impulses while gently and invisibly shaping them towards my impulses. <laughs> do you feel uh, like now you're more confident in just kind of telling them what you want them to do or how does, how is that, how has that changed? What's your philosophy now? <laughs> well, now I'm, I'm old. So I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think definitely with age, uh, you, you might, my, my wife was telling me the other day, my wife is a musician, a vocalist, and, um, we were listening to some of her records from like 20 years ago. And, uh, I said, Oh, your voice sounds so different. And, and she said, well, you know, I mean, women's voices deepen as they age. And I, I said, huh, I thought that was just me like getting more confident. She's like, no, that's, that's physiological, honey. Right. Um, <laughs> so, there might be a you know, feedback loop though, or if your voice is deeper, you might feel more confident. Yeah. Or, or, and also vice versa. Like I think, you know, I think that there is exactly. And so, yeah. That, and also as you get older, like men stop seeing you as a sex object and you're able to get shit done, you know, honestly. Um, so, uh, and you stop seeing yourself as one. I mean, I think as a young director, I thought a lot about like, how do I use my, how do I seduce people into doing what, you know, what I want them to do? Um, and, uh, I don't think about that anymore. Um, but you know, the thing that I would say, and I don't, I'm not, um, I'm not criticizing it. Like, I think that there is something useful about passing through some of that and, and, you know, tactics, right. Different tactics, experimenting with different tactics is, uh, an important part of learning. Um, I think the way that, that I'm sitting with it in this moment is, uh, I, 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 I usually start out by saying I'm really interested in everyone being able to bring their full self into the room. Um, I want you here. I want to hear you. I want to fully see you. Um, I want you to bring it. Uh, and you know, we won't always agree and that'll be fine. You know, like the idea that, um, I'm cutting off some part of someone else. If I, uh, if, if I articulate a piece of my vision or a different choice, it's just a false dichotomy. You know, I can mm -hmm. honor and respect and hold the totality of all of my collaborators while saying, and, and, and you know, um, I think explicitly saying, okay, cool. I see that you're bringing that in. Um, and uh, I really appreciate that you brought that. Um, we're going to go in a different direction. I, I'd like us to, um, to, to actually do X. You know, and, and it's, as, it's as simple as that. It's not, it's not a matter of, um, people don't need to feel like they won to feel like they're there. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I think that's yeah. what I used to think. <laughs> well, Megan, it's been so lovely having you on New Books in Performing Arts. I really enjoyed your book. There must be happy endings. And, um, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Andy. It's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to read your play, which I got to do um, oh, this you. morning. And uh, and just um, thank you for uh, telling people about new books. Um, I'm I and all the other authors, I'm sure, are really grateful. Thank you. Mm -hmm.